Okay, it looks to me like we're one minute past, so I'm going to start. Uh, good morning, I'm Jim Henson. I'm the director of the Texas Politics Project here at the University of Texas at Austin. On behalf of the Texas Tribune, I'm very happy to welcome you to the sixth annual Texas Tribune Festival and to the panel of the Senate Agenda. Uh, as somebody who works here at UT, I also want to uh, take the opportunity to, thank, to welcome you on behalf of the university. We love having the Tribune Festival here. It's great to be part of the public conversation. Uh, this panel is supported by Gulf States Toyota. Uh, though sponsors and donors underwrite this event, they play no role in determining the event's content, panelists, or line of questioning. So please silence your phone if you're tweeting. The hashtag is TTF. I wish they had done a little better than that, honestly. Um, we have a distinguished and very large panel, so I'm going to very briefly introduce them. Um, if we do long introductions, it'll be time to go. And we've talked about the way that we're going to do this panel. It's going to be much more conversational than uh, everybody taking a turn, and I'll do my best to be fair. Uh, and so we'll talk for 30 to 40 minutes, and then we'll open it up for uh, polite questioning. Um, uh, so immediately on my left is Dr. Don Buckingham, who is a Republican candidate for Senate District 24. Next to her is Senator Connie Burton. From, uh, next to Senator Burton, please. <laughs> no, 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 please, please. It's all right. Uh, please. It's okay. <laughs> next, to, next to Senator Burton is Senator Sylvia Garcia. <laughs> I think I want to blame Dancing with the Stars for this dynamic. Um, High school graduation. Uh, next to Senator Garcia is Senator Chuy Hinojosa. Next to you. Then Senator Jose Rodriguez. And last but certainly not least, Senator Van Taylor. Okay, so let's get to it. Uh, the way that we've, we've discussed doing this is to start at least by talking about the things that you're going to have to talk about. So let's start with talking about the budget and what the budget outlook is. How bad will it be? How good will it be? On one hand, the legislature, as, as people are very quick to point out, wisely left a lot in the bank last time amidst uh, a lot of uncertainty. Uh, on the other hand, the, the revenue estimate continues to go down as... Things continue to pop up. I'd like to start with the vice chairman, if we could, and put Senator Hinojosa on the spot. How, how's the oh, budget no, looking? That's not a problem, and, and thank you for inviting me here today. I really enjoy uh, these panel discussions. Uh, I will first start by telling you the last session, we had a great session in terms of funds uh, for the state. Uh, we were able to invest on our infrastructure, like uh, transportation, uh, water, uh, at the same time uh, reduce property taxes, and business taxes. And we still were uh, uh, over $5 billion under the spending cap. Uh, we are pay-as-you-go state. Now, moving forward, as we know, the price of oil uh, has uh, been very low, uh, not producing the revenue that we have in the past. Uh, and right now, we're looking uh, at a very tight budget come next session. I think right now, instead of having $5 billion plus uh, in the piggy bank, uh, we now have probably uh, about a billion or less uh, as a cushion. Keep it in mind that as we look forward, uh, we will have about a billion dollar deficit in Medicaid because we always underfund Medicaid. Uh, in addition to that, we will not have the same type of funds we had, so it will be a very tight budget uh, in trying to come up with a, with a budget that will be fair across the board because we'll also have public education, uh, which is a big, big issue and probably a priority issue for next session. Senator Taylor, what do you think? I mean, are you, as you look at the budget, is it, do you worry about it? Is it going to be hard as you go in, or are you comfortable with the situation? Well, I think, you know, stepping back a little bit, you know, uh, Texas had some pretty hard budget choices in 2003 and 2011, uh, and there were kind of two ways for the state to go, you know, raise taxes or cut services. Uh, in the state of Texas, made the choice to, you know, to tighten its belt as a state, not to put a further burden on the taxpayers and say, hey, don't make us make hard choices. We're going to make you families make hard choices. Uh, and in turn, things worked out really well for the state of Texas. Uh, the economy came back. We grew jobs. Uh, revenue came back. And it all, quote, unquote, worked out in the end. Uh, this session, I don't think, is as difficult as 2003 or 2011. Uh, but I think it is, it is going to be, quote, unquote, a tight budget. 
but the good news is the voters of Texas have sent conservatives to the Texas Senate, to the Texas legislature, uh, and those conservatives make those hard choices. Um, and they make the hard choices so that they don't raise taxes on families and force them to make hard choices. What do you think about the hard choices, Senator Garcia? Well, I- if I may, I, I think you can do more than just cut or raise taxes. Uh, you can also reallocate resources. You know, you can look at the, the millions of dollars that we're spending and should to be uh, proposed to be a billion on border security, which I still don't really know what, exactly what we're doing and where we're going with it. Uh, some of those dollars could be reallocated. You can also look at partnering with local governments instead of fighting them on local control issues and partnering with them to work together to get things done. So I think you can do some things without always thinking about cutting programs or raising taxes. I think we need to be more creative, think out of the box, and make sure that we can cover those priorities that are important to the state and to the working people of the state. I want to I want to egg on that fight about local control in a little bit. <laughs> That's a surprise. But, yeah. but before but before we get to that, I saw you nodding a little bit. I'm, I'm wondering, Senator Burton, how this inc- the proposed increase on border security strikes you. Well, it's certainly a priority for um, my constituents in in my district. So, um, you know, we don't feel like the federal government has done what they should be doing. And so, therefore, I mean, we don't want to do this, but we feel like we have to. My constituents want it. Um, So we have done the most that we can do at this point on border security. Um, And I think it's – it is – it, obviously, it's, you know, we all have different priorities, but for me, border secu- security was one, and I'm glad that we funded it the way that we did. But there's now talk of increasing it yet again. And we'll talk about that mm-hmm. next session. What do you think, Senator Rodriguez? Well, uh, let me just say this with respect to the budget. We always talk about the budget being tight, and if you're flush with money, as we were a uh, session or two ago, or whether you are facing a shortfall, there is always money there that gets distributed, you know, the pie. Uh, there, as the senator pointed out, the Senator Nojosa, some money left over on the table from last session. We are projected to have almost a 10 and a half, almost uh, $11 billion rainy day fund. I, for one, think that it's raining in the state of Texas on public education, on coverage of the uninsured, and many other needs. The, the Child Protective Services Program, the foster care system, that is totally broken under court order. We need to do something. And this mantra that we cannot even consider the possibility of raising taxes is uh, puzzling to me. Because as a growing state, as a growing state, and we pride ourselves in Texas having people come in every year, increasing jobs and all that, there obviously are increased needs the way cities do, the way counties face. And there's always a need to make sure you have the proper amounts of investment in order to stay up with inflation, with the needs of the community. So my view is, you know what, mysteriously, always, I don't serve on it, but our senator from McAllen does, in the uh, House Budget Committee at the end, there's monies that are divvied up, you know, for certain districts, for certain projects. There's always money for some reason. And there's money in the rainy day fund. And from my point of view, we ought to look at how we can increase our revenue sources. Uh, There are plenty of loopholes in our tax system for certain uh, uh, taxpayers, uh, industries. We ought to look at all of that. Uh, It is raining on the public education system. The Supreme Court said that it's it's constitutional, minimally, but it did say we do band-aids after band-aids after band-aids and we don't fix the problem. To fix the problem, Uh, you have to do more investment. And I know some of my colleagues feel that there's already enough money in the system. I don't agree with that. Well, I think we're going to find out from your colleague to the left of you about this, or physically to the left of you. you know, I I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And for the audience's point of view... If not physically. I understand. For the audience's point of view, I'm sitting on the far right, uh, uh, where I belong. But, uh, you know, look, certainly in Collin County, in my district... We're seeing tremendous job growth from companies that are coming from states that are heavily taxed. And when they talk about why are they leaving California like Toyota is or why are they leaving Illinois like State Farm is and they're coming to Collin County, they're talking about the enormous tax burden that is put on them by those states and how those – but also 
how those states are underinvesting in infrastructure, how they're putting in ridiculous regulations, and they just can't do business there anymore, and they're coming to Texas. So my, my perspective on state government is very much shaped by watching these what I call blue state refugees, who people just, I can't do it here anymore. I've got to leave. I've got to get out. I've got to come to Collin County. I've got to grow my business there. Well, let me ask you this, though. Is it raining? Yeah. I mean, you know, people are talking about different things. Do you think it's raining on any of these areas that... No. You don't think it's raining? raining. I tell you what, I, I, across my district, every day I talk to people who feel like they are being taxed out of their home and their family property. And so we are going to look for ways to create efficiencies across the governmental system and save people money. And I anticipate we're going to have a more conservative budget and we're going to cut your taxes. Let me tell you what I say. I think it's more than rain. Excuse me. It's it's storming. I think he's right. (laughs) There, There are coming... They are coming to Texas because they want people to be ready to go to work. So it's one of the first things people ask when they move somewhere is, how are their schools? They're concerned about their children. And they're concerned not just at an elementary level, but all across the board to make sure they've got good workers. So it is about education. I mean, we've not fully restored the cuts of 2011. We've not looked at any of the formulas. And now we're still talking about different programs and proposals to take more money away from public schools to charters and public schools and I mean uh, private schools, parochial schools. To me, that's crazy. We still haven't even fixed our public school system. We rely on it, and it's a future workforce of the state, and we can't continue a great economy without good workers. Let me make a point. Uh, you know, I, obviously, we need to take a balanced approach to different issues, different problems, different challenges. But what is happening is, at the state level, uh, we like to brag, we didn't raise your taxes. But a lot of that cost is being pushed hmm. to local communities, uh, which only have cities, sales tax, and property taxes. Counties, property taxes. Schools, property taxes. So what we're doing is, uh, we're pushing their costs to local communities because we have a lot more sources uh, and uh, revenue to be able to raise the funds, to be able to comply and, and meet our responsibilities, public education, public services, public security. Having said that, uh, I don't want to be cutting taxes so deeply at the state level uh, that we become like Kansas, Louisiana. They can't even pay the bills, uh, and they will never make up the money they have lost by cutting taxes so deeply that not investing in the infrastructure they need, whether it's transportation, whether it's water, public education. There, there is a real... Uh, challenge for us and a, and a real fear that we may cut so deep that we cut into the muscle and not just the fat. Can, can we get, I want to get specific about something for a moment and then we'll kind of circle back to some of the broader themes, but one of the, one of the big revenue questions that's going to be, I think, very front and center if people choose to look at it is Medicaid because the waiver is going to, expand, is going to expire at the end of 2017 and we're going to have to face that one way or the other. Um, are there any rumblings? Does the change in the presidency, any other kind of changes on the ground, the pressure because of the waiver, change the terrain for Medicaid expansion in the legislature? Sure. So I, I sit on the Health and Human Services Committee, uh, and, and we've looked. You know, and people bring it to us all the time. I mean, I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't think we've had a hearing for many for a long, as long as I've been on the committee that doesn't bring up Medicaid expansion. Uh, four states did Medicaid expansion in 2000, uh, Delaware, Oregon, Maine, and Arizona. Uh, in all four of those states, uh, their Medicaid rolls went up, their private insured rolls went down almost point for point. So Arizona, uh, Medicaid rolls went up from 10% of the population to 14% of the population. Their private insured rate went from 58% of the population to 54% of the population. Your uninsured rate was unchanged, uh, basically, in all four of those states that did Medicaid expansion. The costs were extraordinary. Uh, in Arizona, they thought it would cost $600 million a year in 2010. And projecting 10 years out, it cost $2.4 billion. They were off 300%. Very, very expensive for the state of Arizona. Uh, and their uncompensated care went up 100%. So the policy objectives of I want to cover more people, I want to lower the cost of health care, and I want to reduce uncompensated care, Medicaid expansion has been a complete failure in all four states where it's been tried when you look over a decade-long period. If you look at history, it's a bad idea. People still keep saying, well, maybe we could do it differently, but they've been unable to explain how they would do it differently. Well, well I, I also serve on the Health and Human Services Committee. We just had an 11-hour hearing last week, and we touched on this issue of the, of the waiver. 
And what that means, that if we don't come up with a solution to continue paying for the uncompensated care for those patients who don't pay and who show up in our emergency rooms where it costs us even more money as taxpayers, that if we don't do something, we're going to lose out <coughs> on millions and millions of dollars, billions of dollars, actually, is the word, the B. And, and, and I, we must be reading different studies, I guess, uh, my good friend and I, because I've looked, at, I've looked at some studies that indicate that in some of these states that have not even gone through the uh, Affordable Care Act route, that did their own private sector, market-driven uh, insurance coverage for the uninsured, they are getting more money in those states than what's being paid out on Medicaid. Uh, and, and they're actually coming out ahead. You look at the Perryman Group, economists and others who have done studies on this, they talk about all the billions of dollars that Texas is losing out. In fact, we're, we estimated if we had started when, when other states did, if we set up our own state exchange, that we would be returning $100 billion for a $15 billion investment. You know, that's, that's you invest $10, right? I mean, or a dollar, you get back 10 Senator Byrne, you shook your head when I said, is there a chance? But I wanted to ask you, is there, how do you respond? I mean, Senator Taylor did a great job, I think, of laying out policy, the policy objectives. If there isn't going to be Medicaid expansion, what, what is the means of doing that? I mean, well, you seem pretty first, sure that there was well, no Medicaid expansion. Yeah, I mean, I, I, from my perspective, the will is not there for Medicaid expansion. And I just want to remind everybody, because, you know, we have to look at the big picture, obviously, and we are talking about a federal government that is almost $20 trillion in debt. So we keep talking about these dollars that we're not taking, I don't know where these dollars are. We've got a country that's $20 trillion in debt. Um, I'd like to attack this completely differently. It's kind of why we always talk about these one-size-fits-all solutions don't work. We're not supposed to solve. This isn't the way it was supposed to be done. We should be talking at the state level at what we want to do, not being told by the federal government to do it this way, which doesn't even help us. You know, we're spending money that they don't have in a way that doesn't help Texas. What I'd like to do is get back to the Tenth Amendment, which is so far gone, it's unbelievable. But let's have these arguments at the state level. Let's figure out how to, to, deal, to deal with this at the state level rather than trying to take money from a federal government that doesn't have it. So what, so what is that solution, though? Well, that, I, I'm not going to sit here and say we've got a solution. That's what the legislature is supposed to do. That's why you elected us, to go to the Capitol and figure out these solutions. And I think we do it a heck of a lot better here than they do in D.C., um, well, well so, we have, in fact, proposed uh, different alternatives to uh, going the, through the Affordable Care Act. we still got the mandates from the federal government. We can't well, really solve it as well, long as we've got the bootstrap of the federal government on us. I, I, you know, Arizona, Arkansas, these are very well, conservative mean, even, states. Even, even Mike Pence, who's the vice president of nominee for the, the Republican Party, Indiana did the expansion. Right. I mean, this There's is a lot not of difference. Something. There's a lot There's, of differences no, Connie, of opinion let me finish, also in you the said, and, and they did their program. I mean, there's a lot of states who have done that. And Sir Rodriguez is correct. We had the Texas solution. There have been a number of proposals that have been embraced by the Hospital Association, by the Greater Houston Partnership, by all the county judges of most of our largest counties. It's just a matter of personality conflicts, I think. And I think who gets elected oh, president mm-hmm. will make a difference because we won't have the attack on the current administration anymore. There will be someone new at the White House, and who that person is is going to determine whether or not we make some changes on our relationship with the federal government. You know, I, I, look, yes, the federal government prints money. <laughs> yeah, they do. But it's still real money. Yes. Yeah. $90 <laughs> billion of our taxpayers' money. Uh, just, we're leaving on the table. It's still on the table. We've got to make that money up. So how do we make that money up? By paying more taxes locally. Uh, and to me, uh, we've got to figure out how to bring in uh, and take down uh, matching dollars uh, to be able to maximize our resources in healthcare service to our people. We have a lot of poor working families that are not covered by insurance. Uh, there are a lot of poor people uh, that use our emergency services in the hospitals, which increases the cost. Uh, and yet, uh, when we don't come up with a solution, we're turning our back uh, on health care that impacts our whole state, not only our kids going to school, but also our people going to work. 
Okay, you're mentioning going to school. I'm going to switch topics, and I'll right. start with you. Well, as a How's Medicaid that? provider and as a doctor, just okay, real quick, tell us a little bit. You yeah. know, I would tell you, you know, our Medicaid system is broken, and I would Absolutely. tell you, you did have some states like Arkansas that that did have some unique thoughts, but but those states, it's costing them more than they're getting in, right. and we do have a big problem with uncompensated care, and we do have a problem with Medicaid, but but I don't think Medicaid expansion is the way to fix it. So we are going to have to be creative about that. And, and Doctor, if we increase the Medicaid rates, would that not make a difference? The problem is that this state has very low Medicaid rates, and you drive doctors out of the system because of that, and because we don't increase the rates to the appropriate level, we end up with all of this uncompensated care that now we've got to pay through our tax system through our emergency room, you know that. And so either way, it seems to me, we need to look at the system and find out how can we, I agree with Senator Burton, how can we provide the best possible healthcare services to our population, those who need it, with efficiency, with cost savings, avoiding fraud, and all the rest of it. But we can't just continue in the same way that we have. We don't want to expand Medicaid. We say it's broken. I don't agree it's broken. But we say it's broken. Okay, if it's broken, then why don't we come up with a solution that makes sense for us here in Texas? And we are invited to do that. The Obama administration has shut down everything. And, and Chairman Hinojosa, you've seen with your hospitals in your own district, I mean, they just missed out on, what is it, $33, $38 million in uncompensated care through a waiver program that the Obama administration said, we're fine with that in other states, but you're Texas, we're not fine with it. So this isn't going to be very popular in this crowd, so but I would tell everyone, to okay. so this, this is going to be a very complicated issue on the agenda, so let's move on to something else <laughs> a little simpler and talk about public education. Oh, God. About, about what? We're going to move to public education. So... You know, the court has, with some rough language, but still uh, accepting language, said that the public education system is back in the court of the le- is back in the in the legislature's court, and they gave you, as I said, some tough language, but not really didn't really force your hand, other than what they've said. So, is the legislature going to do anything on public ed this time? Well, I hope we do. I, I hope that we don't. Because you have to remember, as Senator, as Senator Rodriguez said earlier, it said minimal. And Texas doesn't do anything minimal. We like doing things bigger and better. We like to brag that we're the best. You know, we've got over 5 million kids that we've got to worry about. And it's from pre-K, quite frankly, all the way to, to 12. And nowadays, you've got to worry that at least two years of community college or training or, or something, because you've got businesses that are ready for workers. We've got to worry about it, and we've got to do something to make sure that all students get the resources and the tools that they need, that the teachers get the pay that they deserve, that the schools are ready and their libraries. I mean, I, I was involved in raising dollars for, for, for money for, for a library in one of my schools. They're always calling about things. It's not equitable. We need to fix it. But I think we hear that from both sides of the aisle, that we have to do something. But the question is, can well, the, the legislature well, the get it together not, to agree on that something? Well, to me, the answer is not taking money away from the public schools to shift it somewhere else. That's number one. And mm-hmm. it is about looking at all those formulas to make sure that they're fair and not so complicated, whether it's for transportation, English language learners, uh, 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 facilities all across the board. I mean, it's really been there a long time, and it's very complicated. Look, I mean, it's not just about money. Uh, uh, while money is key, uh, you know, we funded uh, the increase in students. There are 90,000 new students coming into a public school system. But it's also the unequal funding of public schools that's a problem. Some schools have too much. Some schools, not enough. And that's an issue. Uh, thirdly, there are other changes we can make in the system, for example, uh, trying to attract more teachers uh, that teach math, that teach biology, that teach science, by paying them a higher salary to attract them as an incentive. So I mean, it's not just a money issue. While it is one of the key issues, there are other issues within the system itself that we can try to improve and incentivize 
uh, to make it work a lot better in terms of educating our, our students. It certainly looks right now like the momentum in the Senate, if the lieutenant governor has anything to say about it, is going to be less oriented towards school finance and more towards mechanisms broadly thought of as school choice. Is that you think that's the right read? Well, you know, the Senate the Senate last session passed uh, passed school choice, a, a form of it, uh, and I think that you'll see that happen again. Um, you know, certainly, you know, the people are with us. I mean, the people want choices in their lives, just like they go to a restaurant, they want to be able to look on a menu and make a choice. Uh, and I think that's something that you'll see the, the Senate continue to push forward. I, I just want to key up on one thing that Senator Hanna said. Something that I've been concerned about, and you, you've heard me express this in, in the Education Committee, uh, is that you know, last year we spent more money on education than we ever have in the history of the state of Texas on a per-student basis. Um, but when you go down and start looking at where is the money being spent, you realize that only 23 cents on the dollar is going to, student, is going to teacher salary. That's very frustrating to me because I think we all know that great teachers is how you have a great education system. Uh, and it's just like, how is it that 77 cents isn't going into teacher salary? How is it that 77 cents is going to something other than teacher salary? There's, there's yeah. something other than just the state level. You know, people have to be, and probably you are, but we need more people involved at the local level with your school boards. You know, to, to, if, if the teachers are not getting, you know, the salaries that they deserve, if the money is not going to the classrooms themselves, obviously, I think, I think we would all agree that, you know, the classroom is the most important part of the public education system, right? And so, you know, we can do so much, but then... People need to step up at their local level, right, and, and talk to their school boards and their superintendents as to where you, you know, if you see the money being spent on things other than education um, at the school, that's where you need to speak up, too. So it's not just the state level that, you know, you need to talk let me, to let me, about Let education. me say this, and, and both Senator Taylor and I and Senator Garcia serve on the Senate Ed Committee. We've had plenty of debates. And look, your question is, what are you going to do something to fix the school finance problem that we have in this state, which even the Supreme Court identified? Uh, and the answer is we need to do that. We're having students, the achievement gap for certain students, uh, English language learners, disadvantaged students, is growing wider. There's still plenty of dropouts. There is a lot of work to be done. And while I agree with Senator Hinojosa, my good friend, that not everything is about money, some things are. <laughs> For example, if we're going to fix the school finance problem, we have to do something about the added weight that we give additional funding for English language learners, bilingual education uh, programs, uh, and the disadvantaged students. Uh, the schools are now over 52% Latino. Uh, we have a lot of English language learners and disadvantaged students that are not getting to college that are dropping out, that are not receiving the appropriate instruction. Why? Because the state of Texas has given a 10% added weight to the average daily attendance amount, uh, the allotment that they give per, per student, uh, because they recognize that these students, special needs students, disadvantaged students, at-risk students, uh, require additional funding. We've been getting 10% since 1984. That formula has not changed. So if we're going to fix the system, we have to fix the added on weights. We have to do away with inefficiencies in the system that we have where under the rubric of hold harmless or targeted revenue, there's different terminology used. You have a situation where money is being sent to rich school districts where my friend resides <laughs> at the expense at the expense of I don't think he meant that as proper, a no, <laughs> poor, poor property wealth school districts. And in effect, what the expert said from the Equity Center at one of our hearings was astounding to me. He said, essentially, what's happening is that the already overtaxed taxpayers in property-poor school districts, like those along the border, but there's other places in the state, are the ones that are subsidizing the property wealthy districts so, so I think through these formulas. Seeing. So what we're uh, seeing what the clear we're seeing what the clear no. differences are no. here, but no. I want to go back to the no. question. Of, <laughs> no, you asked. Can, can anybody? No, <laughs> I will can, challenge him on that. Some, I, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I would challenge you on well, that. Can something that happen? Let's, let's sit down right? and talk. That's, the question is: Can this discussion? Can anything come out of this discussion that will move the ball forward and and can also survive the house? 
I uh, hope so. I mean, I think I think we want to put our kids first. I think we're all united in the idea that yeah. our kids are our future workforce. Right. It's our state's ability to compete. You know, and I think we may disagree on different tactics or specifics right. of financing. But, you know, I mean, I've served on my school board and sat on the State Board of Educator Certification. And I know what it's like to get that big budget with a $4 million deficit and have to balance that. And I understand the challenges of the WADO, which is the weighted average daily attendance, which I think should completely go away. Mm. Because you have to be ready to teach 100% of your kids. Your expenses are based on 100% of your kids showing up. And you're only reimbursed for the kids who show up that day. 80%, 70%, whatever it is, and that's completely wrong. My other concern is, honestly, I think we have to address the unfunded mandates that we pass down to our Absolutely. schools. Absolutely. We have to acknowledge that we are part of the problem right. for our schools and yeah. have got to stop passing down the unfunded mandates. And we have tons of things. I well, think we probably would agree a lot on testing. Right. And so I want to go to Senator Garcia first. Yeah, real quick. You know, here's what it is. We all have a consensus. There's a consensus that education... It's a priority. Education is the best equalizer we have in our society. But, but when you get to the details, right. how do we fund education? Right. Right. Uh, we're moving towards trying to cap appraisal, right? We're trying to move and cap property taxes. That's actually the bulk of the money that, uh, that supports our school districts. So there's a lot of tension uh, in the system itself uh, as we try to sort of swim our way and, right. and, and work our way through all these issues and problems. But I think we, we have a commitment that we have to find a solution, a workable solution, and deal with what's before us. Senator Garcia, we were talking in the back, and I mean, and so I want to ask briefly, and then we, I want to move on a little bit because we're going to run out of time. I don't want to get any ideas of what the back means. <laughs> <laughs> it's the green room. I mean, it, se- it seems to me that there's, that, yes, there's, there are two... Uh, he just got it. There are two different things, yes. <laughs> There are two different things going on in the Senate, it seems to me. There's this discussion of what can we do about or possible things about school finance and the way that we're talking about it. And then there's also the matter of a school choice solution, which seems to be on the agenda. Does the Senate have the carrying capacity for both? Yeah. So I, I wanted I think to address... I, well, as, as Senator Taylor mentioned, it, the, the voucher bill did pass the Senate, but it, did, it died in the House. The proposals now are, are two sort of... You know, I always say you can put the lipstick on the pig, but it's still a pig. I mean, you can put lipstick on that voucher, a school savings account, or even, you know, the tax credit thing, but it's still a voucher, in my view. And I think both of them would would do more harm than good, because, again, it's just taking money away from public schools. And then secondly, and more importantly, it's just going to cost so much more. I mean, the school savings account program that that was testified about uh, that's modeled, that they want to model after Nevada, it's still under litigation. It's not even been implemented. And if we even look at the formula that they use to try to determine how many students would actually apply and what it would cost them, we can't afford it. I mean, if we look at 5% of our students who maybe could do that, you're talking over a billion dollars. Not to mention growing government by creating a bureaucracy to have to take care and administer all that. I don't see any. I don't see how anybody really thinks Glenn Hager has time to review every single little receipt that a parent's going to turn in. He'd probably make someone else do. I'm it. sure. Yeah. So it requires staff. So I think you know. I just think it's it's the wrong solutions. I think we really need to focus on on fixing the, the public school system before we try to give any dollars away to anybody else. So I would hope that we wouldn't look at it. Um, I would hope that you wouldn't be the party of no. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> no, I didn't um, say that. No, it's, it's the litigations in Nevada. I mean, why would we model a program after a, a program that is in litigation and it's not even been into, implemented? And it, right. it's such a small state that you're comparing apples to oranges. We're Texas. So we this is what I want to say. Listen, I get it. We are, one of the core functions of state government is education funding. I get it. Public education. I am not against that. And a lot of times we get accused of that. And I am not. My dad was a principal superintendent of a public school. I went to public school. My girls go to public schools. I love public schools. But there's also constituencies who want something different. So what we're trying to do is balance that. I mean, we represent, I represent people, not just an institution or a business or this, right? So I, 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 that's who I represent. People want a different choice, and there's nothing wrong with that. 
I would hope that we would embrace that and say, yes, we were gonna, we're going to fund our public schools because it is a core function of state government. We're going to make them as good as good as they can be, but we're also going to give you parents who want a different solution for your child something that you can live with. That's the way it should be. This is an all-encompassing thing. We're not taking money away. As a matter of fact, right now, kind of sort of what's on the table is something where a portion of the dollars stay with the public schools, even though they don't have that child there. So they're actually getting money for a child that's not there. So let's try to be very open-minded about this and remember that we're not going to just represent one person, one institution, one of anything, but we're going to try to help everybody with their child's education. Okay, so before we open it up for questions, I want to do a quick, we'll call it a lightning round, so that everybody gets a set, we'll try to call it a lightning round, so that everybody gets a shot, just, if you could get one thing on the agenda in the Senate that would get a fair hearing and wouldn't get lost in the process, what would it be? And I'll start with you. Um, I'll be carrying carrying the governor's ethics package. What? I'm sorry, say that again. Ethics. 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 I'll be carrying that. You guys voted for it last time. You'll get to vote for it again. That's the thing you really want. Okay, governor's <laughs> ethics, but... Yeah. School finance. Fix the system once and for all and make it long-term. So something easy. Okay. Something, yeah, right. No, 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 that's exactly... We've got to look after the interests of our kids. Uh, I, I would like for us to focus on actual problems, trying to solve the problems that we have as a state, from CPS to uh, foster homes to... Uh, public education, to higher education, uh, and, and get away from some of this, uh, what I call, uh, social divisive issues that really uh, have no business being part of government. Beautiful. I was, I, my first thing that came to mind was just reviewing all the funding formulas for education, which I've already spoken about. But I think the second one would be to do something. I mean, we have the highest uninsured rate. I do think it's time for us to expand Medicaid. Uh, you know, that includes over a million people and probably about, about 100,000 veterans. I think we need to ca- take care of our own people. I want to uh, stop taxpayer dollars from going to private industry. Ooh, okay. <laughs> and, you know, I'm hoping that y'all pay less property taxes. <laughs> so re- less property taxes. Okay, so write those all down and you'll see how they do. Okay, let's uh, open it up for questions. So there are microphones here and here. Uh, you can line up, so please. There were some things we wanted to get to, and we didn't. If you don't ask questions, I'll just keep going. They're avoiding tax dollars going to private enterprises. All right. Let's start over here, sir. Well, then why are we sending tax dollars to the private sector? Is this on? Okay. I'm Corey Troiani. I'm with an organization called Texas Campaign for the Environment. Um, I wanted to talk about the Sunset Review Commission which a couple of you are uh, commissioners for. So um, uh, the Sunset Review Commission is reviewing the Railroad Commission right now, uh, the agency that's supposed to enforce uh, oil and gas. Um, the, the staff found that they cannot demonstrate the effectiveness in regulating the oil and gas industry. And last year, they only enforced 16% of violations that occurred in the oil and gas industry, uh, 16%. Um, so my question is, how can lawmakers and sunset commissioners in particular justify an inept regulatory framework that fosters lawlessness in the drilling industry and claim no deep changes need to be made, as is the case right now? Lawless. Okay, so a statement question. Yeah, exactly. For the sunset Lawless members. Industry. The sure. So what's going to happen with the Railroad Commission? Well, you know, you know, the sunset process is a really yeah. – I'm part of the sunset commission. Right. Uh, and uh, the sunset process is really an open process. Uh, the staff maker makes recommendations. We take testimony from the public, uh, and we vote on modifications. But the process, if you're talking about the Robert Commission, uh, we ha- haven't even started and gotten there yet. Uh, so whatever recommendations are adopted by the commission then go through, through its respective house, the Senate and the House, uh, and then... You have hearings, committee hearings, so it's a long process. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily agree uh, with your characterization of being lawless uh, companies. I mean, I think there are, there are issues and problems in terms of public policy that we have to address, uh, and we will. Perfect. Perfect. Sure. Trust the process. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah. The process. I, I think there are some issues with the, the senator described the process for approving or disapproving the continuance of the agency. 
But I think part of your question is also how this agency is failing to enforce uh, some of the laws on the books, which I agree with. Uh, as an example, uh, I have pointed out the fact that they have not been doing adequate surveillance and enforcement of oil spills, uh, particularly during these periods of flooding that we've had here in the state. Uh, all of that's been documented by newspapers and all that. I requested information from the commission uh, about uh, the, the steps that they took, uh, and it's very clear that there are, number one, very few investigations, very little enforcement, uh, and essentially a lot of these companies are getting away without getting penalized for uh, allowing spills from their particular wells into our waterways that can affect the environment, that can affect our drinking water and wildlife. So that, that issue, I think, is there. I think it will be considered by the, by the Sunset Commission as part of the process that the senator described. But, but, but let me just add, uh, this happens all across the board with different state agencies. Uh, it is up to us to make corrections and maybe change statute uh, or push certain changes in the rules or regulations. So it is not something we ignore. Uh, but it's a Senator Taylor is the vice chair of this uh, Sunset. Okay, we're going we're gonna to move on. I'm going to get another question. Thank you. Okay. Okay, so my question is in regards to school choice issues, especially with ESAs. Um, a, lot, a lot of folks promote school choice, especially in, uh, because it creates competition between, between schools, and we believe that folks believe that they, uh, they can improve schools academically by making them compete with, uh, compete with other schools for students, and that this will also increase their fiscal efficiency, which is supposed to help out with the school finance issue. Um, so when we look at research, right, um, research on, on, on these issues, especially um, studies coming out of New Orleans and Milwaukee and that kind of thing, we see that it creates inequities and it stratifies, um, it stratifies uh, schools where certain schools have, have good students and, others, and uh, other schools don't. Um, part of this is because students become good and bad money because if I, have, uh, if I get a crop of students who a school closes down because of their test grades, chances are there is a high concentration of low-performing students in that school. So all of a sudden, I don't want those students in my school because that's going to bring my scores down and won't allow me to compete. Right, this is a gaming, uh, a, um, something that influences gaming in New Orleans. Um, studies show little to no improvement in student participation. Okay, I, I, I'm going to ask you to please just get to a question. Okay, all right. Thank so you. so how, how, do, how do we justify these school choice issues when, they, when research tells us that there's no improvement, it exacerbates inequities, and uh, it does things like causes schools to spend money on marketing instead of improving academics? Well, just like I said, I mean, you've got to, uh, again, <clears throat> you, we, we need to, because parents want it. Because individuals want it. Because that's who should decide what kind of education their kids get. So you just want to have just one way only, and everybody's got to conform to that? I don't believe that. I, I, I think, think we, we should, should offer choices so that they can decide which, one, which way they want their child educated. But if those choices create inequality, then, then why, is that, why is that valuable? How is that valuable? Re create inequalities? I'm going yes. to yeah. rephrase your question a little bit and pop it to... to to Senator Taylor. So, I mean, I think the issue is, can you build something that avoids those problems? Well, I, I think, you know, as I've heard Lieutenant Governor say many times, we do have school choice in Texas. If you're wealthy, you can send your kids to private right. school. There are 250,000 children that go to private right. school. Uh, you know, if you, um, if you, if, if you, a parent has the wherewithal to get to a district like Plano, they can go, they can put their kids in the Plano Independent School District. And if they're lucky in a lottery with a charter school, and sure. for every one kid that's in charter schools, they've got, they got another kid that wants to be there that can't get in because our waiting list is it's not quite that long, but it's, it's pretty long. So we do have school choice in Texas. Uh, and the question is, are we going to give it to everybody or only the lucky and or only the wealthy? Uh, and I think, I, think we need to, I think we need to give no. it to everybody. I think it's, I think it's un-American to say, no, only for the wealthy can they have a choice. Well, I don't think anyone's saying that only the wealthy can do that. I mean, every school district in my area has more than one choice. It's your neighborhood school, magnet schools, you know, specialty schools. There are so many magnet schools in every single school now, whether it's elementary or middle school or high school. We have lots of choices. Parents can send their child to the neighborhood school or another school. That I don't think that, that a program, again, from Nevada that is under litigation has not even been implemented, and a review of their applicants shows that more people that make more than $100,000, I think it's 10 to 1, 
even apply versus those that make under 25000 If this is being sold as a program for the poor, they need to rethink it because the applicants are not poor. Uh, so I think we really need to go back to really being realistic. Kids have choices in their own school districts. I know my school districts have plenty of choices, and we've got tons of kids in, on waiting lists at magnet schools because those programs are so good. So we want to put money somewhere. Well, let's give these school districts more money for their magnet schools. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Sir? Thank you. Uh, my name's Carl Jones. I'm from Spicewood, uh, UT grad of the 70s, and uh, retired uh, investment advisor for a major Wall Street firm, uh, now supposedly living a better life. Okay. I have an observation uh, followed by a question. First of all, this enumeration, this uh, being enamored with our uh, U.S. debt of about $19 trillion, I'd like to remind the Senator uh, Burton that our corporate debt, public corporate debt, is approaching $29 trillion. That does not include private debt. So the question is, is the deficit, not so much the debt, the difference between well, what we take in and what we spend. And that, that deficit has shrunk uh, from $1.4 trillion in 2008 to approaching $500 billion now. Okay. Mm -hmm. So having said that, we have a history in this state of cutting public education, cutting uh, uh, child protective services budgeting for the last 25 years, very gradually and incrementally. Uh, cutting our spending on um, uh, other social services, uh, for example, the failure to embrace uh, the Medicaid expansion. This has resulted in more and more cumulative problem of people being uh, left out and not accessible to the needs to live a better life. At many times, most times, no fault of their own. So, sir, the question is, how can we, why can't we recognize these trends and work together to solve them as opposed to being remaining polarizing and refusing to work with the budgets and the very good position that we have in this state with our rainy day fund and solve these problems and fund them properly? Well, first of all, I think that you have a, a very different view of what a government should do, what the role of government is. Um, I am a full believer in funding uh, core functions of state government. Um, that's what I believe in, right? We should uh, uh, fund these education, water infrastructure, public safety, um, those kinds of things. Um, I do not believe that government can nor will solve all our, our ills in society. I don't believe it. I think our country, that you may not agree with me, but I think capitalism is the best thing uh, to offer. People that, that are in poverty, the best way out of it is for them to own their own business, to start their own business. They don't have the opportunities. People do not have these opportunities in other countries. So I think the system that we have here works great, but the government has messed it up because we're taking those opportunities away from them by more regulations, more taxes, those kinds of things, and not funding our core functions. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rephrase this question a little bit based, I think, on the way that you sort of handled it, which is, I think the question in part is, is there, is the, is the system, is it, are our politics so polarized that you really no, can't have that here. conversation? Not here. No. Not in the state. Actually, no, not would, at all. No, not at I all. Would go, I would go exactly, I mean, look, you know, it, we're all, not on the Senate floor, I should say. Y'all yeah. may, but not on the Senate floor. We, we are very I blessed, mean, we're very blessed to, to live in a state with a legislative system that is very functional, that works where the vice chair of finance, who's on the conference committee, is a Democrat. The number one bill passer in the state Senate last session was Judith Zafrini. She's a Democrat, okay? Right. You, you, what, where, no matter where you're from, no matter which party you're with, you have a seat at the table if you're in the Texas legislature. Now, you may not be the majority opinion, and I've been tw frequently been in the well, minority. Well, I'm glad you said it because we're all in the minority when right. it comes to right. the committees. Right. But, well, but, 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 but we have a very functional legislative system. I mean, Washington, D.C., they point right. fingers. They can't pass a budget. It's continuing resolutions, whether it's Republicans or Democrats in control, is an incredibly frustrating to thing to watch. From. But in the Texas legislature, we get things done, and everybody's got to see at the table, and we're glad to have them here. 
And two, two quick points. Uh, okay. One, the majority of issues that we face in the legislature are not partisan issues. Right. They're That's not right. Democrat versus Republican. That's exactly uh, right. There's only a handful of those type of issues. Yes. The second point on the money is that we have always increased funding for many of these agencies, except in 20, I think it's 2013, when we had that uh, $15, 20000000000 billion deficit. Uh, and we are a pay-as-you-go state. We cannot spend money we don't have. So the economy is down. Obviously, we, we cannot uh, go into deficit spending. So it, it's an issue and a factor every year when we work on the budget. You want to say something? Well, well I, I was just going to say, while, while it's true that we still have in, in the Senate uh, a deliberative body, we have uh, diminished that whole process when we did away with the two-thirds rule, which was a long-standing 60-year-old rule that uh, required at least two-thirds of the 31-member Senate to agree to bring a matter up for debate. And that's the, the, the rule that encouraged compromise, consensus building, because you needed to go to your colleagues from both sides of the aisle to try to get the record number, uh, the requisite number of votes right. to bring up your bill. Well, that's, that's done away with. Let me tell you how it's manifesting itself now, and I don't know, maybe my colleagues haven't noticed it. I have, because I've been... Uh, affected by it. Rarely do you have senators in the past uh, voting against local bills, bills that are purely local to our separate jurisdictions, because we respected that. Now we've come to the point where I've had local bills that affected only El Paso County, but for which I could not get support from my colleagues, simply because philosophically, they disagreed with what I was trying to accomplish, or even worse, in my view, uh, having groups like Empower Texas and others indicate every single day in the morning which bills you vote for, which bills you vote against. And so I can come forward with science, evidence, data. So it sounds and, like you and feel so like it's a little but, less... But because the, 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 the sheet today says no on your bill, then I get a no. I mean, that's not promoting... I, I think the, the local bill thing is really, really very, very troubling because I think that is a, a long-standing tradition, and nobody knows their district better than the person that represents it. And I, too, had a couple of local bills that, that people didn't vote for and had a couple of them vetoed. And it, to me, it just doesn't make sense. So you can talk about, you know, school boards, you know, you do what you want to locally, but the fact is local control is under attack, whether it's oh, yeah. a fight here in yeah. Austin about Uber, whether it's a fight about the plastic bags, whether it's Absolutely. a hero ordinance in Houston. And I just think that, to me, that's, again, going against a philosophical yeah. thing that's been there, and even in the Republican platform has had a a long-standing history of supporting local control. But now, all of a sudden, things misguided, have changed. And it's misguided, because there is no Tenth Amendment for cities. <laughs> well, it's There is misguided. no Tenth Amendment for cities. The, the, there is, there there, is a constitutional... There's no one better than the people closest to you We created that, the that cities, the, the state government. did. Right. So we have absolutely well, every right to say, you are overreaching. But, but there is in the Constitution the authority for cities to incorporate as home rule cities... And part of being a home rule. Who gave them that home rule? Well, it's in the Constitution. The state did. And and it provides that cities can pass ordinances that are in pursuance of the general health, safety, and welfare of the community. I mean, that is the essence of local control, where your folks in Fort Worth can determine at the very local level, very democratically, through its representatives, what are the concerns, how are we going to address them here locally. And it seems to me that. We, we're having the reverse of the state of Texas constantly saying, we don't trust the federal government, it's affecting our sovereignty, they're meddling, intervening, interfering with us, and Sorry. then we turn right around and do the same thing to Did you hear, local we government. Have, there's a... Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> no. Sorry. <All> right. <laughs> you can cheer all you want, but it's not how it's made up. We, the Tenth Amendment gives... We, the states were here first... We created the federal government. We have the 10th Amendment uh, that tell, the states can do. In other words, we can tell the federal government, you are, you are meddling in our business. You are overreaching. But the cities do not have the 10th Amendment. We created the cities. We laid down the rules for them. If they're overreaching, we have every right to say, stop. 
What happened to local control? This, this illustrates why I wanted to put local control on the agenda. So please. Whether they're overreaching or not, and who gets to decide that? And in my view, well, there's both, most, of, most of the things, that. let me finish, Connie. Most of the things that are under attack that, that really surfaced are really not overreaching. I mean, oh, the cities have oh. gone through their process, the cities have done what they need to do. Deciding it's just, a it's just, or not? It's That's just not that somebody up here decides they don't like that. Overreaching so, can be in the eye of the beholder, I think, is the, so, so I think, <laughs> what we're seeing here a and, little bit and on so, both sides. So then you go back to who's in elected office at the state. So we can decide that. We've been put in office by voters. And I think we're going to well, see a lot of discussion respect, in both chambers this time. you have to respect my right. voters and let me do what I need to do in my district. Well, yeah, that's respect my I want to make that's time for one more question, no, but not. I also it's want to ask thing. Dr. Buckingham, who is not in the chamber, does this seem like it's going for you <laughs> or not? What do you Are think? You, you sure you want to come in? <laughs> you know, I've, what, what I've seen from, from kind of watching the Senate and being down at the Capitol, being an advocate on health care and education, um, and what I saw this last session, you know, the anticipation was um, you had a, a very unique freshman class coming into the Senate. Yeah. had a huge number of them. Yep. You had a new lieutenant governor. We had change in the state for 14 years. And everybody thought their hair was going to be on fire and the building right. was going to explode and the ground was going to open up and swallow somebody. <laughs> and, um, but, but, you know, what I saw in watching the and Senate... And maybe a person or two did get swallowed. Maybe. But. I don't know. Yeah. But, uh, but what I saw in the Senate was... And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was the, the highest number of unanimous votes ever in the Senate. I saw, I saw no, I didn't see big divides sitting in the gallery. I didn't see, you know, you, you have discussion, you, um, you work together, but mm-hmm. I think it's great. People have disparate We opinions. argue, and then we're okay with yeah, it afterwards. they come together, they work on common <laughs> ground, expand that common ground. You know, Some days we're probably sorry. better than others, but, yeah, but, if but you I, I, I think your point's there. open conversations and riff it up a little bit and then find your common ground and expand on that, that's how you get things done in government. And so I'm excited to be a part of this body and hopefully join these folks. That's the spirit. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, question over here. I've lost my timekeeper. I don't know where we are, but... <laughs> Um, poverty is a big problem, um, and uh, poverty, the effects of poverty are really costly. Um, but we do also have a lot of wealthy people in Texas as well. In fact, um, some of Texas cities are some of the mo- have some of the highest degrees of income inequality compared to other U.S. cities. So my question is, what can we do about income, in- or more specifically, what can you do about income inequality? Sure. Well, I, Let the market I, I, work. Well, I'll take, I mean, I'll take that. What can we do about income inequality? There's no anti-poverty program better than a job. I mean, jobs help people get out of poverty. Uh, and you've got to have a good education system to make that happen. But you also need to have the right environment to foster economic development. And again, I mean, representing Collin County, which is a very conservative county, but a very successful county economically, we keep watching businesses leave blue states and come to Collin County and talk about how too much government too high taxes, not investing in infrastructure, not investing in pension funds, going into debt is not a formula for success. And they come to Texas, and they're very engaged politically because they want to make sure that Texas is never like where they just came from. They want to make sure that Texas has, we're investing in infrastructure, that we're making sure our pension funds are full, that we're not going into debt, that we're not raising taxes, that we have an environment where businesses can grow and develop. And that is the best anti-poverty mechanism there can be. And I'll, I'll just I'll pick on the city of L.A. The city of L.A. is bigger than, I think, 20 states. It's an absolutely massive city. Over the last 30 years, between 1980 and 2010, it added a million in population and lost 100,000 jobs. You can't make that up on volume. They're, what they're doing in California isn't working. What we're doing in Texas is. Well, I, I, but, it's really but, not a panel at the Texas Tribune Festival if you don't kick around California well, at least well, once. Well, we, 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 we so we, we've now hit our quota. Professor, we should recognize that according to the latest data, Texas, especially children, have the highest poverty rates that we've ever had in this state. Now, we talk about, and it's true that we've created a lot of jobs, a lot, like my friend says, my good friend says, we've, we've had industry coming here from California and other places. But it seems to me to address the question of poverty, we ought to start by paying a living wage to our workers. I mean, there is too many. There are jobs where people are working below minimum wage, sub-minimum wage. There's, you know, we have this trend in industry where people are no longer hired for a full, 
40-hour week in order to avoid the uh, employer covering insurance, covering yeah. other costs. And so people are having two, three jobs uh, in order to make ends meet. And so while I agree that we have made progress on the economic front, there's a lot of people that are getting left behind because of some of these policies uh, so, that we have in the state that really uh, are a barrier to people moving out of poverty. So, Senator, well, you, know, you want to tell businesses how much they can um, pay their employees? So if you had your own business, you want me to tell you how much you should pay your employee? Somebody it, that's a bureaucrat? Well, you know what? If we don't do that, uh, what you're going to have is but the state have having costs, to pick but up the costs. you know your costs. On your business, you know your costs. <laughs> well, she, you know what you should pay your employees, I, not a bureaucrat I, in Austin. Okay, I think we're getting away from the policy question to principle. Oh. <laughs> and, no, I, I, just wanted, I just wanted to add real quickly. You know, it's great to focus on jobs and economic development. I totally agree with that. There's nothing that keeps a family together better than a good job. But you can't get a good job unless you've got education and training. And that's one thing that, my, that Senator Taylor didn't mention. You can't get there without good training and good jobs. So you've got to have a good public school system. Yeah, so it still gets back to, to the To be fair, I think he yeah. did mention it. He did? I didn't hear it. I'm sorry, I didn't hear it. <laughs> he's like, I, I did, I did. He's, I he's being nice, but he's making a face. No, I, I apologize, I didn't hear it. And then, and then the workers can get to work and do what they need to do if they're not healthy. So that's, it's all tied together. Healthier education and good job. That's what all Texans want. Mr. Vice Chairman, I'll give you the last word. You know, you cannot change this type of situation overnight. Uh, and what we've been doing in trying to focus on providing, we have a lot of, lot of uh, unfulfilled jobs that, that we don't have the right personnel. Uh, so we have a shortage of engineers, we have a shortage of, of uh, uh, AC people, we have a shortage of uh, pipe fitters, we have a shortage of different categories where the jobs pay, they don't pay minimum wage, pay a lot more than minimum wage. So we try to change to make sure that we give people the opportunity to get an education, get the skills they need to be employed. I mean, we always hear the complaint from the business community, well, I have all these job openings, but I don't have the skilled personnel to do that. So we try to educate and provide opportunities people who are in poverty, uh, it, it takes time to change uh, that type of system. Yeah. Well, it'll be, it'll be time to be working on that soon enough. <laughs> All right. Please thank our panelists for a very lively panel. Really terrific.